that. I forgot to find out where that song came from. Came from, but I like it. I like it. Thank you. Hey, uh, welcome everybody. Good morning. Glad to see you all here, and glad to see you virtually out there online, wherever you are, whenever you're catching us. Um, I'm glad that you're here. I'm excited to continue in the Gospel of Mark. I have a message uh, today that I think is one. Uh, I think I know is one. But I spent a lot more time on this message, both study and prayer, um, than I do in a lot of them. And I'll explain why here in just a minute. Um, but it's, uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark. It's called Jesus the Servant Messiah. And the idea, again, is, is that Mark is so concise in what he, in what he teaches and what he writes down, what he records. It's uh, not a lot of flowery language, not a lot of explanation that goes along with it. It's really just bam, 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 one thing to another. And really, as I keep saying, the whole point is to call attention to the source of the miraculous, not necessarily the act itself, but the source of that power and why that's important. When we look at Jesus as a servant Messiah, that very same source of power that enables Jesus and the disciples to travel around doing the miraculous um, that we have access to that very same source. And it's important for us to realize. So that's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. I want to get right to it because there's so much in the message today. Um, let's start by catching up. If you're new here, welcome, first of all. If you're out there online, maybe catching us for the first time. Um, I want to go back and just do a really quick recap so we're all on the same page. It's important that we know where we're starting before we know where we're going. So when we last kind of checked in, with Jesus and his disciples last week. So we're in, we're in Mark chapter 3. Um, verse 13 says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those, to, summoned those whom he himself wanted. It's an awkward way of phrasing that. But went up on the mountain, summoned those who he wanted, and they came to him. He's choosing the apostles from among the disciples. The disciples, remember, there's hundreds of them. They're following them around. Some are true disciples. Some are just curious, and some are otherwise. They have other motives for being there. But he calls them to himself. Mark 3, 14, 15. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, to preach and to cast out demons is significant. We look at Mark's gospel and Mark, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew's gospel, and he actually adds a little bit more detail to this. Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8 says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. There's a lot going on there, and Jesus has empowered these apostles to go out and do these things. Again, not just to, to say, hey, look at the cool thing I did. It's to draw attention, to bring attention to the source of that power. And as we're going to see today, some of that attention is good, and some of it is not so good. You know, today they say any publicity is good publicity. That's maybe not always the case. This week, what we're going to do we're going to take a, a look at a section of Scripture. It's Mark chapter 3. If you want to follow along, verses 20 through 35. Okay, now my Bible is the New American Standard, NASB. That's the one I teach out of. So if you have that, yours will read exactly the same as mine. If you have a different translation, different version, 
might read a little bit differently, but I'll either read the scriptures to you or we'll put them on screen, so we'll, we're all going to be fine. But what we're doing, we're looking at this section of scripture. Now, this section of scripture is meaty. There's a lot of stuff in there. One of the reasons it took me so long to pray about it and to study it and to look at it is because there's so much there. There's topics such as house divided or a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. That's contained in there. The binding up and plundering of the house of the strong man, that's in there. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit is guilty of eternal sin. That's in there. Also a little section where it looks like Jesus is literally denying or disowning his whole family. There's a lot of meat in there. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have most likely heard at least one, if not a whole bunch of teachings on those different topics. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's, it's valid to take Scripture and to teach on the individual topics, but... What I want to point out today, and one of the things that I really had to pray about, is that rather than to teach them in separate lessons, and again, that's a good way to do it, that it's valid, and each lesson is very, very significant and impactful, but it's also important, I believe, to teach it accurately. That's my charge. Scripture tells me that my job as a teacher is to make the meaning clear to make it say what it was meant to say. And so I take a lot of care to make sure that I do that. And in this case, I think it's critically important that we look at Scripture in context. We look at this section specifically in context. It's one thing. Jesus spoke this in its entirety. He didn't teach it as four different lessons or five different or six different lessons he spoke it in its entirety, and it's so important that we do that because we have the same problem today with sound bites and misquotes, don't we? Anywhere you go, you turn on the news, you read something, and you can he said that, and you go, I was there. He didn't say that. That's not at all what he said. Or if you go, and rather than the three-second clip that gets on to social media, you go and you actually take the time to research it and go, okay, here's the raw footage of what he said. That's not at all what was said. And yet, you'll pull that out. Now, best case, uh, you know, the innocent scenario is you're just trying to make a point, and you're using things to make your point. Worst case scenario, though, you're trying intentionally to misquote or to mislead. Now, I'm not saying people who have broken this into several different messages are trying that by any means, but there's a greater overall message that Jesus is trying to get across here when he teaches this. That's what we're going to look at because misquoting, um, fights have started, careers have been ruined, all kinds of things over misquoting. And with Scripture, it's even more, it's even more important. There's so much more at stake than just an argument or, or a career ruined. This is eternal, and it's important that we understand it the way. So today what we're going to do, we're going to look at today's section of Scripture the way that it was spoken by Jesus and the way that it was recorded by Mark. We're going to look at it that way, and we're going to look at it in that context so that 
we can pull out the deeper meaning. There's obviously little nuggets all sprinkled throughout this, but we're going to look at the bigger, deeper meaning that we're after here, okay? So, so as we heard earlier, two minutes ago earlier, we heard that Jesus had just commissioned the apostles. He had sent them out with the authority and empowered them to perform miracles in his name. Okay, we know that. So Matthew's gospel, again, adds a little bit more to this and tells us what led up to it. Because if you read Mark, it's, okay, he was doing this, he commissioned his apostles, and now, here we are over here. There's, there's a lot that happens between the this and the that, and Matthew fills that in. Matthew 12, 22, 23. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus. And he healed him so that the man who was unable to speak talked and could see. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? All right, reread that, and it's like, okay, is he, isn't he? It, it, it may or may not be impactful for you, depending on how you look at that. But what's important to understand is that the impact of that statement just the last phrase, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? It's a crowd, it's a crowd question. They're kind of like murmuring and sort of asking this question among themselves. We can't underestimate the impact that that statement or that question would have had on the Pharisees who were in the crowd. That's what we're going to talk about today, and it's important to see it that way. What it is, that statement, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? It goes back to one of the most, one of the cornerstones of Jewish teaching on the Messiah. Comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's called the Davidic Covenant. If you've ever heard about that, God made a covenant with Moses. There are several covenants along the way, one with Abraham made different covenants. This is called the Davidic covenant. And listen to what this is. This is this is the Lord speaking to Samuel. Samuel then passing this on prophetically to David. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is verse 8, and then I'm going to jump to 12 and 13. So here we go, 2 Samuel 7. Now then, this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be leader over my people, Israel. And then verse 12, when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is a promise from God to David. And it's not that I will establish you and magnify and multiply you. It is your descendant. So when the crowd says, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? That's what they're talking about. Is that the one? The Pharisees in the crowd would have understood that. And then you couple that with some more prophecy. We go to Isaiah, again, hundreds of years before this event, Isaiah 35, 4 and 5 says, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The retribution of God will come, but he will save you. 
That's exactly what the Pharisees and most of the Jewish culture was looking for. That was their Messiah, the guy that comes with vengeance, the guy that takes it out on your enemies. You're going to stand back and just watch him wreak havoc on your enemies. That's what they were waiting for. So when they saw a servant Messiah, gentle, humble, come to serve, that didn't fit what they were looking for. So they didn't see it. Continuing on here, verse 5. Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. You put those two things together, and the Pharisees who made it their life's mission to study and know Scripture, they would have known those Scriptures by heart. They're hearing this. They're seeing what Jesus is doing, performing these miracles. They're hearing the crowd go, is this the son of David? And they had to put two and two together. There was no ambiguity now in what they were seeing. What they had just witnessed was impossible for them to deny. They heard Jesus teach. They saw him perform miracles. They heard the crowd saying, could this be? And they knew that it had to be true. They just knew it had to be true. The evidence was right in front of them. This Jesus guy had to be the promised Christ. Had to be. Unfortunately, but predictably, they refused to admit it. They couldn't admit it. If they admitted it, that meant their entire paradigm of what they thought everything was going to be, what they had taught, what they had expected, what they had looked for, for generations, didn't look like what they thought. They couldn't admit that. So remember that as we look at then today's scripture. Again, so we're in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read it in its entirety, okay? And I want you just to listen. If you want to follow along, you can. But I'm going to read it start to finish so that you can get the fullness of the context of what's going on. Then we'll go back and we'll look at individual individual verses, and we'll kind of pull it apart and pull out the meaning, okay? So here we go. Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. And so he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But he is finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and and while standing outside, they sent word to him, calling for him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Here are my mother 
and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, this is my brother and sister and mother. That's it in its entirety. It's meant as one statement, one teaching from Jesus. Multiple points in there that you can pull out, absolutely. But it's one statement that he says. Now let's go back. Let's go back together and let's look at some of those points individually, okay? Mark 3.20, back to the beginning. And he came home, he obviously is Jesus, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Home is probably Peter's house. It's in Capernaum. They're not talking about going home, home to Nazareth or anything. This is probably in Capernaum, somebody, one of the disciples' homes. And intermingled with the crowd of those who are praising him and following him, saying, you know, and asking the question, can this be the son of David, was another group who had other ideas, other motives, wished to do him harm. And they were just looking for a reason. Mark 3.21, and when his own people heard about this, they came out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost its senses his senses. So what this means is his family. That's truly, they're talking about his people, his family from Nazareth heard all the commotion that Jesus was getting into, their brother, their son was getting into down in in Capernaum. And they're like, we need to go get him and bring him home. Okay. For a couple reasons. One, for his own safety. But then the other thing is that family honor was very, very important in that culture. Still is. So if one of yours is out saying things that could be considered crazy or, or we're causing a commotion or a stir or the wrong kind of attention, they're like, let's go get him and bring him home before he gets in any more trouble, brings any more slander to our family name. Let's go get him. So they're not there yet. In context here, they've, just, they've heard about it and they're going out to get him. But they're not the only ones who have heard about all this stir and want to go find out what's going on. Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Scribes is just a generic term. It could mean, it could be Pharisees, it could be religious teachers, could be religious lawyers, um, pretty much anybody in a, in a position of authority, um, could be considered a scribe. So that's who they are. Now, at the same time, though, when they're saying this, they're admitting that these miracles, that these things happened. The problem is they're ascribing the reason to the wrong place. They're saying that Jesus is doing this by literally by the power of the devil. That is a serious charge, claiming that Satan was at work. That was huge. Beelzebul, by the way, just translates as Lord of the Flies. That's their claim, and that's kind of the crux of the problem we're going to talk about here. Mark 3.23, and so he called them to himself, meaning the, the scribes. He said, come here, I got something to tell you. Called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? It's a question, one of those rhetorical teaching questions that Jesus constantly does. How can Satan be his own enemy? And we see at this point, as we go into the future chapters of Mark this really deliberate shift from speaking clearly, bless you, to speaking in parables. And he's going to explain why, but anybody know why 
Jesus shifts to teaching in parables mostly at this point? Not all at once. Take turns. Matthew tells us, Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11 and 13. And the disciples came up and said to him, even the disciples didn't understand, so they just asked him flat out, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Well, if that's not obvious, that's playing out right in front of their eyes. They're seeing Jesus perform miracles. They're hearing what the crowd has to say, but they don't. They see it, but they don't. They hear it, but they don't. That's exactly why. Mark 3, 24. And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. The idea of kingdoms falling and and infighting and all the intrigue that goes on in kingdoms, that was... Such a common thing in that culture. By that time, they had seen kingdoms rise and fall, sometimes through military conquest, but more often than not, it was infighting and division that would, that would destroy a kingdom. So that was a, an illustration they would have been familiar with. Later on, we see Jesus in chains before Pilate saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Aren't we thankful that the kingdom of God does not operate on the same rules that earthly kingdoms do. Mark 3.25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. He's taking a bigger kingdom picture and bringing it right down into their living rooms. There is nobody, probably even among us, there's nobody that can say, I've never seen infighting in a family. Never. Is there anybody here who can say that? Don't, I'm not going to make you lie in church. We've all seen that. So he brings it closer to home. Mark 3, 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Any kingdom, tribe, group, club, whatever it is, has to be in unity or it cannot stand. Scripture is full of of teaching on unity. Both Old Testament, New Testament, Unity is incredibly powerful. We see that. We see Paul writing to the Colossians, Colossians 3, 13, 14. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so you must do also. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond in unity. If you think that's just a New Testament concept, go all the way back, back to the Old Testament. Remember when God was angry all the time? Psalm 133, 1, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. Unity is huge. We'll talk more about how that ties in later. Mark 3, 27, continuing in the scripture here, No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. What he's trying to teach you, the strong man represents Satan. His house represents the dominion that has been given to Satan, his domain, right? Which is here on earth, it's you. Jesus was pointing out that you have to be stronger than the strong man, stronger than Satan in order to then bind him up and take back what is rightfully yours. 
and that's you. That's what's going on here. And this statement, by the way, is more than just a parable, more than just a clever teaching from Jesus. The Pharisees would have heard that statement and immediately, again, connected it to Scripture from Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 24 or 25. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Indeed, this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of a tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. Putting together the pieces of what's happening right in front of their face, it was virtually impossible to deny I say virtual because they found a way. Mark 3.28. This is the the focal point of this entire passage here. Mark 3.28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons and daughters of men, and whatever blasphemies they commit. I did the Greek study on this. All and whatever means all and whatever. It doesn't mean some only certain ones, only these type. It literally means all and whatever. Okay? John actually echoes this later. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no qualifier there. It's not just certain sins. Whatever blasphemies they commit. Keep that in mind. Keep that phrase in mind as we go to the very next couple verses here. Mark 3, 29, 30. But, there's always a but, right? Not the person sitting next to you. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let me read those together. 28 through 30, 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons and daughters of men and whoever and whatever blasphemies they commit. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus had just said, whatever blasphemies, all sins. But here he's saying like in the same breath, there's one that can't be forgiven. How does that work? Does that confuse anybody but me? How does that work? It's kind of like Satan casting out Satan or a kingdom divided against itself. It seems to make no sense. Stay with me. I'll put it together for you. Mark 3, 31. Then his mother and his brothers came, and while standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. Okay, so Jesus' family now has arrived from Nazareth. They come cruising into the scene, seeing this big mob scene at the house where they can't even get in. And they sent word for him, calling for him. So his family has gotten there. They're hoping to just rescue him from the mob. Mark 3, 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Okay, it's probably, it's Mary, his mother, probably four half-brothers and at least two sisters are out there. Joseph is not around anymore, so Joseph wasn't there, but his family, literal family was there. Mark 3:33, answering them, 
Jesus never shies away from a teaching opportunity. So in the middle of all this chaos and mayhem, answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? He's not asking a real question. He knows who they are, and he knows they're outside. But he's taking a teaching opportunity, looking around. Mark 3.34, and looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. He's not disowning his physical family. He's making a point. He's illustrating a deeper concept, which really gets to the heart and the essence of discipleship. Mark 3.35, for whoever does the will of God, this is my mother and brother and sister. That's the essence of of discipleship, a deeper relationship that goes far beyond blood relation and into something spiritual. It's a family that you are adopted into. All who are empowered by the Holy Spirit are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so that person who says, I'm a Christian, professes to be a Christian, but doesn't agree with you, different denomination, different doctrine, different beliefs, different lifestyle, that's your brother and your sister in Christ. We have to remember that. So let's put this all together. Let's put this all together and make some sense of it. In context, here's what Jesus is teaching here, and it's a lesson that we can all apply to our lives today. Not that we can, we need to. It's critical that we do this. After witnessing an obvious miracle and hearing the teachings of Jesus firsthand, these Pharisees were willing to attribute it to anything and everything except the power of God. They were seeing it with their own eyes. It was literally undeniable, and yet somehow they were still able to deny it, claiming instead that it was Satan who had empowered Jesus. And it took an extraordinary, intentional act of defiance to ignore what they were seeing right in front of them to deny Jesus as the son of David, the promised Messiah. See, they were personally and professionally committed to opposing Jesus as the Messiah. They had to. They saw it in front of them. It was undeniable. The crowd was even saying, can this be the son of David? Scripture was lining up. The prophecies were lining up. Jesus was performing miracles. He was teaching well. He wasn't going around teaching heresy. He was teaching well, and he was teaching in depth that it was astounding, Scripture says, to them. Their only problem was he claimed to be the Son of God, and they couldn't allow themselves to believe in that. It had to be calculated and intentional to defy and deny Jesus as the Messiah. So here's what I want you to hear. The takeaway, when Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, he said that. That's not a misquote. He said it and he meant it. But here's what I want you to hear. He is not withholding forgiveness of sin from those people. What he's saying is that someone who would reject the Holy Spirit as the power of God manifest on earth especially after witnessing it firsthand, will never repent 
and ask for forgiveness. The forgiveness and cleansing of sin that's offered only to those who accept Jesus as Lord. So he's not saying, I'm going to withhold forgiveness for you. He's saying, you'll never ask for it. I want you to hear that because so many people get caught up on that. I can't tell you how many times I've hit my thumb with a hammer or stubbed my toe in the middle of the night and I've said something that I shouldn't say and I've thought, did I just blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Church, no one is going to accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Nobody. It is an intentional act of defiance, saying, I see it, I acknowledge it in front of me, I see it for what it is, and I reject it. That's what it is. These hard-hearted Pharisees, in this case, were guilty of an eternal sin because they saw the power of God manifest in Jesus and denied it. Scholars all over, Bible scholars, theologians who have studied this, and I don't put myself on par with them, but I've studied it, and I believe the same thing. They say that you can't possibly do that today even if you wanted to because they were in literally in the presence of Jesus. They saw it. They talked to him. They heard his teaching. They saw it firsthand. It wasn't second and third hand. There was no mistaking, and yet they denied it. I agree that we can't, we can't duplicate that same, even with the Holy Spirit, we can't duplicate that same level of blasphemy that they were able to achieve, but we come dangerously close to it today. There are several ways that we, as the body of Christ, come dangerously close to this kind of sin, this kind of blasphemy, and here's how it works out. We... In our day and age, we refuse to acknowledge the source of everything that we have, and we attribute it to other things. Let me show you how this works. We attribute healing to science and medicine rather than the source of all that science and the source of all those things that we make medicines out of. Science is wonderful. Medicine is fantastic. But it's a tool created by God for us. And when we just say, man, science is great, all these medical advances, you can say that, but give glory to the creator of those things. We attribute our prosperity, all the things that we have, to our hard work and our personal wits. We're so smart. Look at all the things I was able to achieve rather than acknowledge the one that gave you those gifts to begin with, the gifts and the talents to achieve what you achieve. It's not about saying, I'm thankful and look at the things that have happened. It's about acknowledging where they came from. We talk of all that man has accomplished. I've had so many conversations where just in my lifetime, we've gone from, I remember um, 45 albums and 33s and even... Anybody remember 78s? I know some of you do. Going from that to 8-tracks, to cassettes, to CDs, to MP3s, and to 
Who knows where it is today? It seems exponentially to be increasing in how fast technology goes, right? We can go, look at all that man has accomplished in just my lifetime, rather than to acknowledge the one who holds the whole universe in his hands, watching us, empowering us to do the things that we do. And here's one maybe a little bit more simple. We doubt that God's grace and mercy are enough. Here's what I mean by that. I'm too broken for God's mercy to cover me. Sure, maybe you, because you're more holy and you're closer to, to him than I am, but I'm too broken. Or maybe we put it on someone else. I'm okay. I don't know about you. That person, they say they're a Christian. They say they know Christ, but they don't live that lifestyle. They say they know Christ, but they're sinning right now. God can't possibly forgive that. God's grace and mercy are so much more powerful. And if we fail to think that his grace and mercy can't cover all of us, then we're denying his power. The only eternal, unforgivable sin today is a state of continued denial and unbelief. And when I say sin, sin is missing the mark. Sin is God offers it to you, he has it for you, and you're rejecting it. The state of continued denial and unbelief, thankfully, it's not irreversible. Thank you, Jesus, that that state is not irreversible. You can make the choice right now to repent and turn to Jesus today. It is never too late. So if you're in here and you know Jesus, you're out there online and you know who he is, but you don't know him in your heart and you haven't made him your Lord and Savior, it's reversible. Nothing is so far gone. There is no timeline. Well, you didn't do it by the designated timeline. Therefore, I'm rejecting the offer or rescinding the offer. It doesn't work like that. The choice is yours. And more importantly, it's yours alone. No one can make the choice for you. No one can make the decision for you. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved or reject him and perish. That's what it comes down to. And John says it very well. John 3, verses 18 18 through 21. Worship team, you guys can start getting ready. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed by God. We need to live in the light. We need to be the light. When we go out into the world, our job is to not be as the world is, not stand and rail against politicians or science or mask mandates or this or that. And I only use those as examples because that's what's most prevalent right now. Our job is to be different. Our job is to reflect the love of Christ to those around us. 
Let that supernatural power of the Holy Spirit radiate through you to show love to people who, in our flesh, we go, I don't know if they deserve it. God says they deserve it. Just as he said, you deserve it. And he sent his son into this world for you. Whether you think you deserve it or not, you do, and he knew it, and he says so. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have sent your son into this world to save us, to reconcile us to you, yes, to cover our sin, to give us the Holy Spirit so that we can go out and share the love of who you are with the world who desperately needs it. So Lord, I repent of those times where I have thought I did anything in my own power. And I acknowledge you as the giver of everything, the blood in my veins, the breath in my lungs. Everything I have comes from you. Let me share that with the world. Let me reflect the love of Jesus to the world and bring people to you. Lord, let there be nothing in my words or my thoughts or my actions that causes division in the kingdom. Lord, if I have ever been a tool that the enemy has used to sow division or disunity in the body of Christ, Lord, I repent right now. Help me to reflect who you are, not who I am, not who even, not even who, who I want to be, to reflect who you are to the rest of the world. Lord, you are the giver of all things. You are the creator of all things. And we rest in your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, we're gonna take communion together right now. If you're out there at home, I urge you, if it's the middle of the night and you're catching this or in the middle of the day or you're catching us live, don't just say, we'll do communion later. If you're in here in house, I urge you to celebrate communion with us. Because every time we do it, we say, yes, I, I know the teachings of Christ. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior. And I'm going to make a public reaffirmation. Whether there's even anybody around, you could be at home alone. You are doing that. And that act signifies, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he reconciled me to the Father. And I know his teachings and I will stand on those. And I will be a part of spreading the news of who he is to the world. That's what we do. We are thankful for the broken body, the blood that covers us from sin. But it's a reaffirmation every time we do it. Yes, I say yes to who Jesus is. So in here in house, we have at the crosses, we have juice and bread. You can serve yourself there. Gabe and I have wine and bread. We'll serve you up front if you like. Let's move around. We have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for any of these things or, or healing or just help getting through something, somebody needs to just agree with you that God is good, we have prayer team in the back. So look for those lanyards. If you're out there online, you can put in the chat boards anytime what your prayer request is. We'll pray for you as a staff. We'll do that. But as we worship, let's take a moment to just make sure our hearts are right with the Lord and then come up and take communion as we worship on together. Amen, guys? Thank you.